let's turn to Isaiah, where Paul read earlier for us, Isaiah chapter 9, and just two verses this morning. And then we'll give a little bit of a background to these verses. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, and Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Uh, The background to um, Isaiah's prophecy here of the Messiah is actually preceded with another prophecy of the Lord's birth back in chapter 7. So if you want to just flip back to chapter 7, and I want to give just a little bit of uh, a background that leads up to this prophecy that we're going to see fulfilled in the New Testament. So chapter 7, in these first three verses, let, let me just set it the stage up a little bit of the history of um, Israel here. Um, for 360 years, they had judges, but they wanted a king, and so the Lord gave them Saul. Saul reigned for 40 years. After Saul, David came to the throne, and he reigned for 40 years. And after David, his son Solomon came to the throne, and he reigned for 40 years. Now after this, the kingdom of Israel split because of the rebellion of a man named Jeroboam. And he took 10 of the northern tribes and headed north, And that became known as Israel, or the ten northern tribes. Um, If I remember right, they had 19 kings, and not one of them was good. The reoccurring phrase is, and this king did evil in the sight of the Lord after the sins of the father Jeroboam. Now, there's two tribes left in the south. And Rehoboam, um, Solomon's son, was the first one. And these two tribes were Judah and Benjamin. So as we look here in chapter 7, we have a divided kingdom. The king, uh, we read here of the north, northern ten tribes, is teaming up with the king of Syria because he wants to take over the southern two tribes. So we read in verse 1, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, that the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramali, the king of Israel, well, they went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David that Syrian forces are deployed in Ephraim, and so his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the Lord said, oh, let's just stop with these two verses and, and point out that the, uh, the king of Judah and the people, they are scared. They're terrified. And um, this isn't in my notes, but I can't, 
help but think of the irony. This is 700 years before the Lord was born, and nothing's changed. I mean, they're threatened by Syria as I speak. And um, boy, could we get sidetracked here with three major events happening between um, Russian building their seaport in in, um, uh, in Lebanon, the sanctions that we just placed on Iran, and um, uh, of course the prophecy of Damascus in Syria, never been fulfilled, but we can actually see that event taking place here. So what is it, 2,700 years later and Israel's back in the land and the same enemies are, are still there. So anyway, as we look at these, the third verse, and the Lord said to Isaiah, I want you to go out to meet Ahaz and uh, share Shahab, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to them, take heed and be quiet. And don't be afraid or faint-hearted for those two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramali. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves, and we'll set up a king over them, the son of Tabiel. Thus says the Lord, it's not going to happen. It will not stand. In other words, these threats from Syria and the, the king of the north, the ten tribes, says they, they can threaten all they want to. But it's not going to stand, nor will it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son, And if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Now, if they would believe, the fear and the trembling would cease. If they'd only believe the word of the Lord. The Lord says, this is coming down. They can talk all they want to, but I'm telling you right here, it's not going to happen. Matter of fact, looking 65 years into the future, they're actually going to be broken. Now, before I read uh, the 10 and 11, uh, let's read 10 and 11. I want to talk a little bit about Ahaz. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, there was no sincerity in his statement when he said, "Um, I don't want to test the Lord, I don't want to try him. The fact of the matter is, is uh, he was, well, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 16, which deals with um, King Ahaz, and we'll just read the first four verses. Now remember, he's the king of Judah at this time, and we read in 2 Kings 16 verse 1, in the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramali, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, he began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king. He reigned for sixteen years in Jerusalem. 
And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. According to the abominations of the nation whom the Lord has cast out, from before whom the children of Israel. And he sacrificed that he burnt incense on the high place, on the high hills, and under every green tree. Go back um, uh, to 13. Go back to chapter 7 of Isaiah. And we read verses 10 and 11. So he's challenging. Isaiah is challenging Ahaz. You guys don't have to worry about this. It's going to be taken care of. They can make the threats. You can worry about it if you want to. And to prove the point, he says, go ahead and ask. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Ask for a sign, and I'll give you a sign so that you can be rest assured. The reason I went back to seven, Second uh, Kings is... Ahaz despised the things of the Lord and he honored the things of the gods that were in the land before him, making his son to pass through the fire and all the abominations. Uh, Israel had 20 kings and only eight of them were good. Ahaz is an example and his statement here, well, I'm not, I'm not gonna test the Lord. That, that's all rubbish. I was that for a British word on a Sunday morning? Rubbish. (laughs) There's nothing to it. And so the Lord, because of that, says, okay then. Because he knows this guy's heart anyway. He says, okay, that's the way you want it. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. So we read in verse 13, he says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Ahaz the Lord sees right through you. He sees through your hypocrisy, what you say um, in your self-righteousness, oh, I don't want to test the Lord. You don't want anything to do with the Lord. But the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign despite that. You weary me, but I'm going to give you a sign. Now, this sign will not be fulfilled for another 700 years, but here it is. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go with me um, back to chapter 9. And let's make our way up to, let's make our way up to uh, verse 3. Nevertheless, The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined." Before we get to the verses of his birth, these verses are pertaining to the ministry that Jesus had in the Galilees. And um, again, um, 
one of the main things, gang, that we want to uh, latch on to is the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God and so that we see how it can fit together. So having said that, I'm going to have you keep your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 4 in the New Testament and pick up and draw your attention to when Jesus began his ministry. Looking at verse 12. This would have been right after he was baptized, then 40 days and nights being tempted in the wilderness. Verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadows of death, light has dawned. And here is the Lord beginning his ministry, and what's the first thing that he says is, we're fulfilling Bible prophecy. Go back to um, Isaiah, and the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy of the Lord's ministry. And now, as we talk about the names of the Lord this morning, he's the light of the world, and uh, we have here between verse 2 and verse 3 um, um, a, a gap. And again, that's something that we want to pick up on as we go through scriptures. And I'll come back and comment on it, but let's read it first of all. It says, you have multiplied the nations, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men Rejoice when they divide the spoil. Uh, This verse here is going back to Isaiah's time. The nation had been greatly multiplied and the people were more religious, but their joy was gone. They had a lot of religion, but they never had Christ. It was a period of great manifestation, but no real joy. The gap or the hiatus between two and three has already been 2,000 years long. Why didn't Isaiah give any prophecy about this period? Well, because during this interval, between two and three, um, he's saying Isaiah isn't dealing with this period of time because God is dealing with the church. Let me quote, you can turn if you're taking notes, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret since the world began, but now it's being manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Here Paul makes it very clear that the prophets passed over that which they did not see, as Isaiah does in the chapter before us. So there's a gap. We have the Messiah being revealed, beginning of his ministry, 
coming back and now not dealing with what Paul calls a mystery, this period of time that we call the, the church age. It began with Pentecost, and it's going to end, I hope, someday soon <laughs> with the rapture of the church. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, implication, implying a set number, when that final person comes to Christ and the church age comes to an end, then the clock will begin to tick once again. And the next verse in Romans 11, that's 25, but 26 says, and so all Israel will be saved. So again, we're switching gears from the church age back to what God promised. In Daniel, he owes them seven more years. So let's pick up verses four and five. We'll read them together in chapter nine. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning for the fuel of the fire. Now this is a break also, and then it'll talk again about our text. But these verses here, when will the burden be broken? Well, it'll be broken when Christ comes again. Why is it that Israel today cannot enjoy peace? Why have they been called the wandering Jew? Why is anti-Semitism at an all-time high worldwide? Even in the States now, it's on the rise exponentially. Why do the plague, why are they plagued on every border to this day? They're having all these troubles. Remember in, in John 1, it says that he came unto his own but his own received him not. And in Luke 19, he says, because he, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, if you only would have known. I would have been like a mother hen that would have gathered you under my wings, but you were not willing. So why? He said, because they didn't recognize his coming, uh, this peace is gonna be kept from you. Israel has no peace. Oh, they have the greatest military, I think, in the world, one of the best economies, and so on and so forth. But having said that, they're always being threatened, and they really have no peace. Only one can bring peace. That's their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the oppressor will not be broken until the Lord comes a second time. We're going to read it here in a second where he establishes his kingdom. No real peace for Israel until the Prince of Peace comes. Well, it brings us to our text. That was background. Our text says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. As we look at this verse, really it comes from two very different perspectives. One is an earthly one. Unto us a child is born. This is an earthly perspective. The other one, a son is given, well, that's a heavenly perspective, and I'd like to address them, each one, differently. So for the first one, unto us a child is born, the earthly perspective. Let's turn to um, Matthew. Tomorrow night we'll be talking more about this night. I'm going to put up on the screen and give you a little history of one of my favorite places on planet Earth. It's called the Shepherd's Fields. And after all these thousands of years, it is relatively unchanged. Um, to the right of it, 
uh, is the city of Bethlehem. We don't have it in view here. Uh, to the left of it, and if you would follow this all the way down, there's a place called Herodian, uh, where they actually just found um, uh, Herod's tomb within the last 10 years. Um, for those of you who have been to Masada and seen Herod's building project there, well, this place was called Herodian. And um, we stop and we have a Bible study here. We actually have friends that are Bedouins, and when they see us coming, I go like this. And that means bring the sheep because they're going to get money. <laughs> So we have a Bible study in the shepherd's fields. Usually we can get them to come, but if they don't see us, well, then we do it solo. But so much has happened in this field, and that's why I have you here in Matthew chapter one. Let's look at verse five. This is, it says, Solomon, Solomon begat Boaz by Rahab. Well, this is interesting. Rahab was a harlot uh, that uh, took in two spies uh, when they captured Jericho. And uh, they had a son, Boaz, by Ruth. So we have this famous love story uh, during the time of of the judges. And this is where Boaz's fields were. This is where he fell in love with Ruth. Well, it goes on to say that uh, they had a son whose name was Obed, who begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So here we are in the same territory and a couple hundred years later now we have David um, in the fields and the Lord says I'm done with Saul Samuel I want you to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem one of his sons is going to become the next king of Israel and so that happened here and it's amazing how the Bible comes to life to be this is what I call an A spot Uh, Somewhere in this, what we call the shepherd's field, is where Boaz fell in love with Ruth, where David was tending his sheep. But then it's also, as we'll talk tomorrow night, it's where the angels appeared to these humble shepherds and made uh, this great declaration. Let's look at verse... um, Uh, 16 and 17 and fast forward verse 16 of Matthew 1 and Jacob begot Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations and from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations and it's all laid out very clearly here for us. You can leave that up um, for the remainder of the study just because it looks good. (laughs) Okay, unto us, um, we find uh, in verse 18 now through 25, um, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, all the history from Boaz to Ruth to David to um, now the Lord being born in Bethlehem. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about it, these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this was done, and here it is again. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. Again, Bible prophecy. You can't get away from it. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and here's Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, that is sexually speaking, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Isaiah tells us, unto us a child is born. And that's the first part of it. Let's go back to Isaiah. The second, and that would be the earthly perspective. But then it says, unto us a son is given. Now we have the heavenly perspective. Do you notice the preciseness of the genealogy in Matthew? 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Like it's perfectly timed out. Gee, what a coincidence, huh? So now we have Galatians 4, verse 4, which says, if you're taking notes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The father did the sending. A son is given. Now we have the heavenly perspective. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, again, the precision of the scriptures here, if you're taking notes, I'm just going to deal with, I'll, I'll make reference to Colossians and Hebrews, but John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 basically are all telling us the same thing. Let me get something off my chest about this time of year. And just the state of the church in general. Again, this is not part of my notes, so I'll probably get in trouble for doing it. (laughs) But I am so weary with the state of the church in America today, where they really feel that church is all about them. What's in it for me? When the fact of the matter is, the volume of the book is about you, right? The volume of the book is about Jesus, and it's, it's, it's never more exposed than this time of year. What did you get for Christmas? Where are we going for the holidays? And everything revolves around what it, everything except what it should be. Good place for an amen. <laughs> I, I had to vent. It, you know, we've gotten so far away of what the main thing is all about. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. The stuff that the Bible says about you, is it very good? And we're, we're getting there. 
But what it says about our Lord, we'll get into how wonderful he is. The volume of the book is all about Jesus. This season should be all about Jesus. But it's not, and we know that. And now, I'm done with that, I can go on. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, the incarnation. And the word became flesh. Where? In Bethlehem, from a virgin whose name was Mary. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, God with us. This is, again, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Call his name Emmanuel. So a son, now, from the heavenly perspective, is given. Again, if you're taking notes, John 16, verse 28 says, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world, and again I leave the world to go to the Father. He was sent for a purpose. But after he had completed his purpose, he goes to the Mount of Olives and he um, is taken bodily up into heaven and the disciples are witnessing this whole thing and two angels appear and he says, you've been of Galilee, why, why are you just standing there looking? It says, this same Jesus that's being taken up from you, this same Jesus will return likewise. If you're taking notes, check, check it out. Zechariah chapter 12 or chapter 14. When he comes again, he's gonna set his feet on the Mount of Olives and there'll be a great earthquake. The same Jesus. First Timothy 1 verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And please catch this part. Paul said, of whom I am the chief. So I got a beef to pick with Paul. You see, I think I'm a worse sinner than he is, but he thinks he's the chiefest of sinners. So we'll have to debate that someday. But I'm gonna come back to that verse right there just because of who Paul is and a statement that he made. First <clears throat> John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sin. A son is given. A child is born, but now the heavenly perspective, the father sending the son for a designated period of time. When he said it was finished, job over, paid in full, I'm going back home. But he promised in John 14 that he's going to prepare a place for you that where he is, there you can be also. That's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> Let's go back to Isaiah chapter nine and look at verse six, the rest of it. 
For unto us a child is born, earthly perspective. Unto us a son is given, heavenly perspective. And the government will be upon his shoulders. This is future tense when he returns after the battle of Armageddon and he will establish his kingdom for the next thousand years and you and I will rule and reign with him during that time. And then (laughs) what I thought I was going to do is I asked Mary to get me every name of Jesus in the Bible. And um, there's 50 of them. (laughs) So I, I sort of had to scratch that part of it and I'll just, we'll be able just to deal with these for right now, but there's so many. You have the seven I am statements from John's gospel. I'm the resurrection and life. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world, on and on. But here we have what Isaiah calls, and his name will be called Wonderful. This is not an adjective. That is his name. Again, if you're taking notes, in Judges 13, verse 18, we see the pre-incarnate Christ appearing as a captain of the host of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, why do you ask my name, seeing it's a secret? Now, secret, in this verse, is the same word also translated wonderful. In Matthew eleven twenty-seven, the Lord Jesus said, No man knows the Son but the Father. The people did not know it, but he was wonderful. And people still don't know it today. Oh, there's Christians who have trusted him as Savior, but they really don't know how wonderful the Lord is. He's going to put down rebellion when he comes to earth the second time, and he's going to reign over this planet. His name is Wonderful. And we'll have a better understanding of that when we will know him as we're known, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. The second one here is counselor. You know, he never sought the counsel of man. And he never asked for advice of any man. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's Romans eleven thirty-four. God has no counselor. The Lord Jesus never called his disciples together and says, now fellas, what do you think? What do you think we should do here? You don't read anything like that in the scriptures. Matter of fact, what you do read, he says he wouldn't give himself to men because he knew what was in men. Interesting verse. The Lord called them together and says, this is what I'm going to do because this is my Father's will. And Christ has been made unto us wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1. We must go to him for our counseling. We're to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, and then he'll direct our steps. Good place for an amen. We're the ones that need advice. We're the ones that need counsel. And the book that you hold in your hand is the guide that gives us that insight and that wisdom. All right? The mighty God. Well, this will destroy anybody who doesn't hold to the view of the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here it's clearly about Jesus, but here he's called in the mighty God. The Hebrew word for this name 
I'll probably not pronounce it correctly, I'll give it my best shot. El Gabor, he is one of them. All power is given. He is the omnipotent, which means all-powerful God. That little baby lying helpless on Mary's bosom held the universe together. He said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. He is the almighty God. Matter of fact, it says he holds all things together by the power of his word. You know that little, uh, the atom when you look at it, the, the negative and positive charges, naturally they should repel. And the scientists don't know what to come up with it, so they say it's cosmic glue that holds it all together because by physics it should just fall apart. It doesn't. But the Lord says he holds all things together by the power just of his word. Everlasting Father, Jesus told his disciples, you want to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Everlasting Father, Avi Ad, Father of Eternity. This simply means that he is the creator of all things. Even time, the ages, and the far off purposes of all things. We just read it in John, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's First John 1, 3. Then we have Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in the heavens, that are in the earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that would be the angelic and demonic realm. All things were created by him and for him. Again, can I stress the point? It's not about us. <laughs> it's all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Then in Hebrews 1 we read, so here's the three ones, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, we read, God has in his last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Now a better translation here is ages. The translation of the Greek word aion should be ages instead of worlds. And that is the thought of the title of his, the father of eternity, or of all ages. And then finally, the last one that Isaiah gives us is the prince of peace. Uh, Sar Shalohim. There can be no peace on this earth until he is reigning. His government is not a stat that would, there is always increase in growth. No two days I don't think are gonna be alike when the Lord comes and returns. He is going to occupy the throne of David like we read here in verse six. The government will be upon his shoulders. This is a literal throne which he will occupy at his second coming. Justice will be dominant in his rule. God's zeal, not man's plans, will accomplish this. Let's just finish um, when we read here that verse 10, of the increase of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it. From that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Then and only then will there be peace on earth. Well, 
What about, didn't the angels say in these fields here, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And everybody knows that verse, especially around Christmas time. And it's gotta be the craziest statement that's ever been made. Unless it means something else, which it does. If we see, well, let me just ask the the hypothetical question. Do you see peace anywhere in the world today? No, we see wars and rumors of wars. We We see lawlessness nightly. Almost on a daily basis, there's another shooting being shut down. Um, This is everyday occurrence. We're sort of getting numb to the lawlessness that the Bible says the days will become worse and worse. The earth has known relatively very, very short periods of time of peace. So we don't see that. Actually, what the angel is saying here, it means those who have and will make peace with God, will be men of goodwill. But peace has to be made with God. When Paul began his opening greeting to any one of his epistles, he would open it by saying, grace and peace to you. Amen? He always said, grace and peace to you. But here's the deal. You will never know that peace of God until you have personally experienced the grace of God. And only then, actually, I got my notes here closing questions, but you know me better than that, right? (laughs) So closing question, how do I experience God's grace? Well, it's Christmas time. It's a time of gift giving. But you know, many have never received the greatest gift that's ever been offered to mankind. Remember Paul and his statement when he talks about um, God sent his son to save sinners and then he puts in the words, and I am the worst of them. Well, I take issue with him. But this is essential for getting grace. To get grace, there could be no conversion without conviction. In other words, there has to be this realization that you're not a good person, okay? I hope that doesn't strike some of you the bad wrong way. I wanted a Merry Christmas message. <laughs> Romans 5.18, therefore, as though one man's offense, I'm, we're speaking about Adam here. Guys, sin is in your DNA, It's in your blood. There's nothing you can do about it. And you're under a curse because of it. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift, there it is, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But, here it is, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we're told, Ephesians 2.28, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, 
it is the gift of God. Which leads me this Christmas, at Christmas time, it's really not about us, it's a reminder. Once again, by the way, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. <laughs> I know that's going to shock many of you this morning. Now, Constantine, when he presumably got saved in, in about 312, um, the pagan holidays, you know, it's the shortest day of the year, pagan culture celebrated that. And so, Saturnalia. And then we have Easter and uh, how the enemy mocks. I I think it's a mockery what the enemy does. He takes the Lord Jesus Christ, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And who do we look at? Santa Claus for the winter celebration. And then in the springtime with Easter, uh, well, we have a fertility object as a little... Easter Bunny, and uh, that's what we gravitate to. Oh, you're really being a Scrooge this morning, Dwight. Our kids are really going to be bummed out if they hear hear this. No, there's a balance in this game. You know, you have your Christmases. If you have a Christmas tree or not, I could care less. <laughs> and um, celebrating with with gifts and interaction, as long as we're maintaining and ministering to our children the truth and let them know what it's really all about, and that what's first in our heart is really what's most important. Um, pastor friend of mine in Oregon um, had a boy named John. He'd pray with him every night before he put him in bed. And uh, one Christmas evening, he was praying with him, and he says, Dad was praying, and he says, Lord, we just... Pray for more of your presence in our life and that you bless us and that Johnny would have a good night's sleep. Amen. Daddy, can we talk some more about the presents and when are they coming? <laughs> well, that's the mind of a four-year-old, you know. And Dad meant one thing, but, you know, in the mind's eye of a child, um, he sees it other, other ways. No, Jesus is the reason for the season. And the question is, have you received the greatest gift ever? Here's how. I don't do this often, but I'm going to do it this morning. I want you to take out your bulletin and turn to the back. You may be here. You might know about Jesus. You know that um, people speak about him. A lot of times it's slip service but they're not really born again. So when I said you can't experience the peace of God until you experience the grace of God, well, grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift. And so as the question comes up, I'm just gonna read this. It's called Starting Over. Because, you know, it's like the woman at the well. Things come and things go. The Lord says, you drink of that water, you're going to thirst again. And just material things just don't satisfy. You need something else. So the gift that the Lord gives, he says, if you drink of this water, you'll be satisfied. You'll experience peace. By now you've discovered that all roads do not lead to God. And life is not as simple as you once thought. You may be experiencing overwhelming problems. Or life may be going 
smoothly, but you may be sensing that something is missing. For those who are at this crossroad, the Bible offers a new direction through Jesus Christ, one filled with purpose, fulfillment, acceptance, and forgiveness. The steps are very, very simple. Recognize that you really are a sinner, that in you dwells no good thing, that your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. That's what the Bible has to say about us. Recognizing that truth. You know, most people, if you ask them if they're going to heaven, they'll say, yeah, and because of their good works. They actually think they're good. Well, compared to others, maybe yes. What I didn't read this morning that I challenge you is to go back to the calling of Isaiah. It says, in a year that Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his glory filled the temple. And when I saw him, I said, woe is me, for I'm a man with unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean tongues. You see, compared to each other, we don't look that bad. But when you're in the presence of a holy living God, you go, woe is me. And compared to that standard, and that is a standard, perfection, there's only one way it can be attained. Number one, first you must admit your spiritual need. There's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. We can't make excuses or blame others for our circumstances or our actions. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has turned away from God and has broken his laws. Our sin has separated us from a right relationship with the holy God. Step one is that what the Bible says about us is true. Step two, why Jesus is the only way. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you. Left to ourselves, we cannot satisfy God's righteous requirements to be holy, nor can we find pardon through church ritual or membership. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just him for us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Number three, be willing to turn from your sins. Jesus tells us we need to be reborn by the spirit of God in order to become part of God's family. We are put in right standings with God when we agree with him that we are sinners and in need of forgiveness. The word repent simply means to change your direction. The Bible tells us, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God commands us to repent. You must be willing to turn away from the things that displease him. And finally, number four, in a simple way, ask him in your own way to come into your life. How did the thief on the cross do it? Never went to church, was never baptized, had no good works, he was a thief. He simply said, Lord, would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? The Lord forgave that man on the spot. He says, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. That was, a, that was his sinner's prayer. It is essential that you come to Jesus as you are, 
Don't try to clean up your life before you come to God. For it is by grace you've been saved and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. There's only one way to God. Boy, does that politically uncorrect in the world in which we live today. To have the audacity to say that Jesus is the only way. Yes, Jesus is the only way. He's the only one who lived the perfect life. He's the only one that could be the Passover lamb without fault or blemish. And that's why Jesus is the only way. That will not make you popular in the times in which we live. Good place for an amen. But it's the truth. It is the truth. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. As we pray this morning, I'm not going to take for granted that somebody listening, live stream, or somebody here this morning has never said a simple sinner's prayer. I'm not going to ask you to pray it with me. I'm going to pray it as we close on this Christmas, before, uh, Sunday before Christmas. And if you've never accepted the free gift of Jesus, I like to tell people, I would not cross that street out there. I would not walk out of these doors and cross the street unless I knew 100% for sure that my sins are forgiven, my name's in the book of life, and I'm going to heaven. Because it scares the hell out of me. Hell does. Because hell is real. And to hear it and not receive it, it would be the biggest mistake a person could ever have. So join me in prayer. Say it in your own heart as I pray it and close in prayer this morning. Oh God, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sins. Would you please forgive me? I want to turn from my sins and I receive you, Lord Jesus Christ, as my Savior. And I confess you from this moment on as my Lord and from now on I want to follow you. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word also as we see that the volume of the book is about you and not about us. So we thank you for your grace that has given us this perfect peace. And Lord, we pray that as we get together with family and friends um, this holiday season, that we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, but we'll look for opportunities and ways that we can be um, lights for you. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen.